Good morning, church. Good to see you all. Uh, way better to see you all than to not see anybody in the early service. I had candles all around me, and all I could see was right here, which is enough. But I felt like I was preaching to myself, and every once in a while somebody was saying amen and kind of make sure I knew people were here. Uh, so it's good to see your faces shining back at me. Uh, if you would, turn in your Bibles to the letter from Peter to the church. Uh, it's in the back part of the New Testament, First Peter. It's called. We're going to be looking there in chapter 1. We're continuing in our series about joy. Uh, I think that uh, the reason why I wanted to hit on this is because so many people in the church have never really understood that everything that we're supposed to be and do as Christians is to emanate from a joy that comes from understanding the gospel. And so I wanted to hit something in the Christmas season talking about joy. The funny thing to me, but maybe not to you, is that it won't seem too much, very much like Christmassy talk today, uh, but I think that it's the uh, perfect place to be. We uh, started off last week, we covered 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through the first part of 6. We're going to re-hit that real quick to remind you of where we are, and then we're going to jump into verses 6 through 9 today. So um, you let me know that you're with me as we go along the path. I want to make sure that uh, if the lights go out, I know where you are. And so we'll just keep on trucking along, though. Don't be uh, frightened if that happens. I'll shine a light in my face and make it just as scary for you as it was in the first service. All right, let me uh, read through the text. I'll start in verse 3, and then we will pray together, and we'll jump right in. I do have, by the way, a lot of notes here today uh, that I don't want you to try to jot down. I was going to have them printed and ready, but we didn't have that possibility early this morning. And so uh, if you would just uh, hang with me, if you want the notes, you can email me. Go to the website, you can find my email, or thomasw at 12th.co, right, 12th.co. Uh, and that's how you get me, and I will be glad to send you all my notes on this. So let's read the text, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. We'll go back to that and on through verse 9, and then we'll pray together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let us pray. God, I know that today as we talk about some difficult things that you will be working in our minds and our hearts. I pray that you would remove the distractions, that you would help us to focus on what you're trying to tell us from your word, that we might be changed accordingly, and that you would shape us into the image of your son Jesus, that you would change us because you love us, and you love us too much to leave us the way that we are, but ultimately that you would just reveal to us who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus and that we would get to give you the glory for it as you fill us with joy. Lord, we thank you for the goodness and the greatness and the grandeur and the sacrifice of your Son. I pray that you would instill within us 
a love for him because he first loved us and went to the cross to die in our place. And that, Lord, because of that, we can love you now. Father, help us to know you and to make much of you today. And we ask that in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I know that this uh, season is one we talk about joy, we talk about happiness, we talk about trees, we talk about presents, we talk about all the fun things that come along with Christmas, right? Maybe you're missing a tooth and you're praying for that front tooth to come in. Maybe you're, whatever it is you're praying for, you're asking Santa for, whatever it is, I want to tell you, today is not going to be the normal Christmas sermon. Today we're going to talk about some things about finding your joy, but the title for today's sermon would be classified something like this, Finding Joy in the Fire of Suffering. Finding Joy in the Fire of Suffering. Now, I want you to understand that this is something that is not normal for people that don't understand the gospel. You cannot really grasp this if you don't understand the context in which this is going to be talked about. If you're not a believer, not a follower of Jesus, that's okay. Uh, Today, we're glad you're here. You're going to hear some things that are going to sound kind of weird and crazy to you, and we want you to be welcomed into this field to understand what we're talking about, and we're going to be praying that God would enlighten those things in your heart and your mind and illumine you by the power of his Holy Spirit, and that hopefully today you would believe in these truths as we talk about them, but know that it's going to be a little off the, off, outside the box, a little off the wall, maybe, for what you're used to hearing. And I'm also going to tell you that this is not going to be what you hear when you turn on the TV on most channels listening to a preacher. We're not going to talk about how if you just believe in Jesus, everything's going to be okay, because it is there's no promise like that in Scripture. And on the end, it's going to be a lot better than it would be otherwise, okay? But the right now doesn't mean you're going to get everything the way you want it just because you believe in Jesus. Uh, we're going to talk about the true gospel of the Scriptures. In fact, I want to say to you that I think the reason we need to talk about joy is most of us don't understand what it means to have joy in Christ and that we learn most about joy in the times of our suffering. Right? So let me explain that. In fact, let me do it this way. If you're making, taking notes at all today, here's your big number one takeaway that you need to have in your mind as you leave here today. This is it. For Christians, for those who believe in Jesus, for Christians, our suffering leads us to deeper and greater joy in Jesus. For Christians, our suffering leads us to deeper and greater joy in Jesus. Now, that sounds crazy. Hang with me. Let me try to explain this as we go. All right? Okay, there you go. There we go. All right, I know you're here. All right, here we go. I want to back up real quick, and I want to tell you what's going on. We're starting in verse 6 for this text. It says, in this you rejoice, and he goes into talking about suffering. But before we can do that, we have to understand what he means when he says, in this we rejoice. Let's reiterate what we talked about last week for just a minute. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, may a blessing be made upon our God, the Lord and fa- the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says this, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, if you put your hope and faith in Christ, you are not putting your hope and faith in a dead person in the ground, but in the living Christ. Therefore, our hope is a living hope, ongoing because it's in a living person who died and rose again in victory over Satan, sin, death, and hell. We now follow a living Savior, and we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Also, we've been born again to an inheritance, he says, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, unlike the things in this world, right? Because most of us have gone through some type of loss, struggle, hurt, heartache, some kind of depression, some kind of sickness, some kind of a heart-wrenching time in our lives at some level, usually on multiple levels at multiple times. 
And we've gone through those things, and we know that life is not always good, and that this world is fading quickly. It's always disappointing. It never ends up the way we want it to end up. It's never as beautiful as we hope it would be. And we need to know this, that if you have put your hope and faith in Christ, you've been born again, and that you have been brought into an inheritance through Christ that is unfading, that is imperishable. It does not go that direction. It only goes good, good, good forever in Christ. Okay, we need to understand that. He says, that's kept in heaven for you, for us, if you believe in Christ, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, that Jesus is coming back, and when he returns, he's going to take all that sin out of the world, all the sin that brings in all the things that we hate, death, hurt, pain, victimization, all the things that, we, that happen to us, the things that we do, the things that are done to us, the things that we should have done but didn't do that now brings us heartache, all those things are going to be taken away and that we will enjoy life with God the way it was originally intended, without sin, without pain, without suffering, no more mourning, no more crying, no more weeping for those things. Then he says, in this, verse 6, in this you rejoice. Now one of the questions last week was, are you rejoicing in this? one of the ways you know that you're his. Are you rejoicing in those truths? Does it really bring you joy, right? And this week, we see how he takes that. He's going to take it even a bigger twist for us to understand the depth of what he's saying. He says, in this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. I'm going to break this down into several steps, and I want us to take each one a bite at a time, all right? So the big point, again, For Christians, our suffering leads us to deeper and greater joy in Jesus. Now, what do I mean by that? How could that be possible? First of all, let me say this. This is a little bit confusing, okay? So just hear me out and try to write it down maybe or think about it. Our suffering is and is not designed by God, okay? Our suffering is and is not designed by God. So let me explain that. This is hard. This is the part that you're not going to like the most probably, okay? First of all, God never commands or ordains sin ever. So when sin is impacting you, God never made that happen in the sense of casting sin onto you. That did not happen. Sin entered the world through the enemy, uh, entered in the world through Adam and Eve, and now we've inherited that, and it's part of the world, period. But because God is completely sovereign over everything, And he has somehow allowed this to happen in the world for some reason that we can't fully understand. He's going to explain in a minute. Some of it's going to help us to understand this. Because sin has entered the world, he now uses these things that go on, and he allows things to happen to create, uh, to move us, and to, to shape us, and to change us, to make us into the people we were originally intended to be. And he pushes us down a path to rely more on him. So in essence, he is by design putting you through suffering when you go through suffering. This is crazy talk, it sounds like. Let me back it up with Scripture, way better than me trying to explain it. Are you ready? Okay, good. Here we go. 1 Peter 4.19, later on in the same letter, Peter says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, you hear that? Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. People will suffer according to God's will. We don't like that, but that's what it says. If he is sovereign over everything, he's sovereign over our suffering. 
that beckons the question of why does he let us suffer? We'll get to that in a minute. I'll show you some more. Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, that from God, for it has been granted, listen to this, for it has been granted to you, it's been granted to you, he tells the Philippians, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He's saying it's a gift that you have been granted to suffer like Jesus for his sake. So he tells the Philippians, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have, the persecution they're enduring. That just should blow your mind a little bit, right? But then we see, how, how can they be, why would God allow that to happen? The better question would be, not only why did God allow that to happen to us who are sinners, who are rebels at heart with God, but why would he allow it to happen to the perfect person, the only man who was ever perfect, who never did anything wrong, who never sinned, who had no sin within him, why would he lead his own son into suffering, right? And Isaiah tells us exactly that's what happens. Isaiah 53, talking about the coming Christ. He's talking about what's going to happen, what did happen to Jesus, Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So we don't have any problem believing in the sovereign God who would crush his own son for us. We have problem thinking it's the will of God for him to bring suffering in our life, right? Okay, do we understand first? We'll get that switch in our brains a little bit, right? So the fact here I'm trying to tell you, our suffering is, is in the design of God. But he does not cause all this sin in our life. He's not the root cause of that sin or the things that happen to us in sin. But he uses those things. You it like in Romans 8, it says, for all things work to the good of those that love him, right? We've heard that we overuse that too much and we take it out of context all the time. But here it's true that our suffering is designed by God. And it has some unique things that it does. We're going to talk about that. Before we get into that part, let me talk about some things about our suffering that we see here in this text. Look in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. Now, that if necessary tells us that if God deems it's necessary, you'll go through that. That's where we get that from, right? Right before that, it says, though in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. Now, some of you have gone through suffering that was short and sweet in some ways. You've lost a loved one. You've suffered. You've kind of moved beyond that or moved through that. We don't usually get over those things. We kind of get through them, right? But we also know people who are suffering with chronic pain, chronic disease, long-term hurts, long-term ailments, long-term uh, issues from being a victim of something they didn't even deserve in those ways, something that maybe they have done to someone that they're suffering through. Suffering is short here. He says now for a little while, but let's keep that relative, right? If I said I was going to preach for a little while, you would think, well, maybe it's just 30 minutes today, right? But if I said that we're coming up upon the shortest day of the year, you're thinking the winter solstice is 12 hours, right? So it's relative, right? When I say short, it's relative. And so let's look at the context of what he means by now for a little while. But look at this. If we look back and look at verse 3 on, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope, an eternal hope, right? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, talking about future inheritance, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, forever, right, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded 
through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So he's talking about eternal things. And he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, that could mean for the rest of your life here, until eternity there, right? It could mean for a season. It could mean for the rest of your time on this planet. But in light of eternity, we can still rejoice in what God has done for us because we know it's not going to always be that way, right? We are created and born into time and will live forever as immortals. And with Christ, we are relieved from all the things that are so heavy on us now. Our suffering is truly short in light of that truth. Our suffering is not only short, it's also varied. Our suffering is also varied. It is very different for very different people. Some people go through things that others don't seem to ever go through. But there's always somebody that's gone through something similar, right? Too many of us, too many things going on. Look at this verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Now, you could go and do a little word search through all the Scripture and bring up all the different trials that are talked about. We'll see another one in a few minutes. It could be everything from being persecuted for speaking about Jesus to being just simply going through a sickness or going through a time of loss. It could be everything is talked about as a trial in the scriptures that way. So you could put whatever it is for you into that basket. Maybe the loss of a child in your life. Maybe watching a loved one go through heartache, suffering for so long. Maybe like losing a father or a mother, losing someone you care about, losing unborn children, whatever it might be that has gone on in your life being the victim of something that you had nothing to do with, and you've had to live with that your whole life, suffering of that kind, various kinds. It's all encapsulated here. He says again, look, in this you rejoice, the stuff before about Jesus and you being born again, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Our suffering is short, relatively speaking. It's also varied. I think every one of us has something that we have in our hearts, on our minds, on our souls, on our back, that we carry around, that we wish we could let go of. I'm telling you today that you can let go of it if you take it to Jesus. Look, the next thing, our suffering is short, it's buried. It also causes us to grieve. Look, look at the verse, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I want you to hear this straight from me, more so from Scripture. Church, brothers, sisters, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to grieve. It doesn't make you less of a Christian to grieve. It doesn't make you less of a strong person in that sense to grieve. We're all weak. We all need to rely on the Lord. We need him because we are too weak to carry it ourselves. And what we do by trying to hold into that grief and hold it underside, say, I'm going to be stronger for so-and-so in my family. I'm not going to grieve in that way. I've got to be strong. Or I just don't want to let that out. That's not me. I'm not going to let that out for everybody and be pitied by anybody. What we do in that when we grieve is that we depend on God. And when we refuse to do that, we actually take away some of God's glory by not letting him shine through in the times of our need. Do you hear what I'm saying? Like, let me, let me say it a little different way. Some of us need to take a moment and go to the Lord this week and say, God, remind me of some places in my life where I've never taken the time to grieve loss. Even Jesus does it. 
His best, one of his best friends, Lazarus, dies. He goes after Lazarus is dead. He goes, he tells his disciples, I didn't go until he was dead, basically, so that you would see the glory of God, right? He knows he's going to raise Lazarus. He knows what he's going to do. And he goes there, and one of Lazarus' sisters comes out. She says, if you had just been here, he wouldn't have died. And he said, oh, but didn't I tell you you'll see the resurrection, right? And then the other sister comes out, and she says the same thing. If you had just been here, but this time he doesn't say that to her. He just weeps with her. He grieves the loss of his friend. He knows what he's about to do. He's about to raise this guy from the dead. But he grieves the loss because he hates death so much. And he hates the depravity of our sinful soul so much that he gave his life to overcome it. And he just weeps over the effects of sin and over the loss. And then he goes and raises him, right? It's okay to grieve. Some of you need to take the time to grieve. It's okay. When we grieve, we show we have a need. When we grieve, we allow ourselves to, to recognize our total inability to make it through a moment. And we rely more on the Lord. Our suffering causes us to grieve. Here's where the turn takes place. It's short, it's varied, it causes us to grieve. Here, look at verse 7. Read verse 6 into 7. In this you rejoice, all the stuff we rejoice in the fact that God has made us born again. He's caused that brought us to a new living hope, to an imperishable, undefiled, uh, an unfading, kept in heaven for us uh, inheritance. And now, it says, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Listen to this. So that, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whenever you see the word so that in Scripture, or for, that's saying what I'm about to tell you is the reason for all I just said. Okay, so he's saying so that this thing. So go back and look. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Why? That's the question. Why do you let that happen, God? Why do you let me be grieved by these various trials? Why do you let me suffer? And he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a mouthful. We're going to break it down. You ready? Okay, some of you are not. Are you ready now? Okay. Our suffering, our suffering refines our faith. Our suffering refines our faith. Now, verse 7 is kind of hard to understand because it's got a parenthetical statement right in the middle of it, right? So I'm going to kind of break this down. Look at it again. So he, he lets us go through this. For now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, right? So you've been tested through the trial. It's been shown to be genuine. Your faith is shown to be genuine. He says, that faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. So you know how you test gold, how you purify gold. You put it into a, a big pot, and you heat it up really hot, and all the junk in it rises to the top. It's called dross. And they take a big thing, and they just wax it off the top. And now the gold is more pure, and they cool it back down, and it's a more pure bar of gold. That's how you go from, like, 10 carat to 18 carat, Right? So that's how you make it pure. And gold is by far the standard, right? I mean, you know, it's the gold standard. That's how you know it's the best, right? It's by far the best. So this is a very weird statement, actually. He's talking about faith, the genuineness of your faith. Look, more precious than gold, 
So to God, your faith, when it's tested and proven true, is more precious than gold. Look, that perishes. But gold doesn't perish. That's why it's so valuable, right? It stays alive in the fire. So he's saying that your faith, when you've gone through these trials, it's been tested in the fire, and when it's been tested and shown to be genuine, it's more precious than gold that perishes. It's because in the end, the gold will pass away. However, your faith and soul will not. And to God, he values more your faith in him than he does the gold of the world. It's way more valuable. It's way more rare, even. Our suffering refines our faith in the same way. See, when you go through suffering, when you go through heartache, what happens is you go through the fires, and when you go through that, you begin to see so clearly what's important. All the dross, all the negative stuff rises to the surface and becomes inconsequential. When you go through an immediate loss of someone you love, things become crystal clear about importance, don't they? All of a sudden, you're not worried about the junk that doesn't matter so much. You're worried about people that you care about. You're about seeing the people that you need to talk to, about saying the right things to the right people. You don't seem to worry so much about who made you mad the other day. You're worried about the important stuff. It brings clarity. It refines you. Okay, and this is what happens in your soul. When you go through times of, of suffering, you recognize that all the stuff you were holding on to, the things you found so important that clutter up your world, they begin to fall away and not be so important anymore, and only the important things rise to the top that are still there. That's what God's doing in your time of suffering. He's refining you in that same way. In fact, that's kind of the purpose of the refinement, right? He says, so that, this is the reason, so that your genuine faith, right, would be shown this way. 2 Corinthians 1, 8, and 9, Paul says this statement. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. He said it was so hard. We thought we were going to die. We thought we were done. We thought this is it. Listen to this. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He sometimes allows us to go through suffering so that we will run to him and rely on him because that is where we find true life is in him. And we can think we can do it all day long. They keep depending on self, depending on self. We keep failing over and over and over and over and over again. Or we keep running up against the same walls over and over and over again. We don't realize that's the definition of insanity, right? Keep doing the same thing, thinking we're going to get different results. Instead, running to the Lord. Now, he doesn't always answer the prayers the way you want them answered, but he's always there to carry you through and to be the one who gives you the strength to make it through because you don't have it in self. I don't have it in self. What would it look like if we just went ahead and lived that way now instead of waiting for the suffering to come around? What if we just believed on him? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. When you face that kind of suffering, it changes everything for you. Sometimes... I can't do it. Lord, only you can do it. I'm going to rely on you. And whatever you do, I'm just going to trust in you. Now, there's a, the next step of this is really big, important to understand. Our suffering refines our faith. We have to also understand that our suffering proves our faith is genuine, if it is. Our suffering proves that our faith is genuine, if it is. But look back at this text with me, verse 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
He says, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's take the parentheses out. Let's just read those two pieces together without the parenthetical statement that we now get, right? Go back and look at verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our suffering proves if our faith is genuine. You know this. I am seldom likely to bring somebody up on this platform and let them give their testimony just because they come up and say, God got them over this hump in their life. Because I want to sit down and have a conversation. I want to let a little time pass. I want to hear about it then and see how things are going. Okay, I've heard it too many times for too many people. My dad used to call it jailhouse conversions. People that would be going through a hard time, and they would just pray, 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 and God would kind of bring them through that thing just because either he was already going to anyway or he answered their prayer, and next thing you know, they're like, oh, I'm all about God, and then a little bit later on, they're not about God anymore. You know what I'm saying? You've been around that, right? Depend on, that's what we call moralistic therapeutic deism. I know. Moralistic therapeutic deism. That's the big phrase right now for that whole thing. You live good morals. This is what most people call themselves Christians. They actually have moralistic therapeutic deism. They're not really Christians. Okay? They believe in good morals. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to go to God when I have a need. That's the therapeutic part. Because I believe there is a God. He's out there, but he, I only need him when I need him. That's the deism, not real Christianity. Okay, there is a God, but I don't need him all the time. He can stay out there when I need him. I'll go to him, lay on the couch. I'll talk to him. He'll fix my problems, and then I won't go back anymore for a while until the next problem comes, and I'll just be a good person. That is not Christianity. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not what it is to be a believer in Christ. But that is what most people that call themselves Christians actually believe. You just talk to people. Just ask them what they believe in. They'll give you those things. How do you get to be with the Lord in the end? Well, you're a good person. You know? Well, do you believe in God? Well, yeah, sure. Do you believe God is, is like talking to you every day, trying to move you down the road every day? No, well, I mean, I don't know. I don't, they, don't, they don't know if they believe that. They don't believe in the true God of the Scriptures. So how do you know if the faith is genuine? Because when you go through suffering, he proves it's genuine. So here's the deal. When you go through suffering and heartache, what do you run to? Where do you find your hope? Do you find it, this is the easy one to be against, right? Do you find it in the bottle or the pill bottle, the bottom of the pill bottle, the bottom of the alcohol bottle, maybe? More likely, you find it in Facebook now, right? Or more likely, you find it in going and talking to your friends to give you the good advice you need to get through it. Friends are good. I'm not saying don't talk to your friends. Or more than likely, you read a good self-help book that's on the top 10 list at Lifeway, which is why I don't always go to Lifeway. I love Lifeway for a lot of things, but don't trust the top 10 list. Right? You can't just go outside all these things. You need to, do you run to the Lord? Is that where your hope is? That when things go to the, from bad to worse, where do you run? Where do you find your hope? Where do you find your fulfillment? That tells you what your God is. Do you, do you understand? If you run to other people, they're the ones to whom you seek favor. You trust for them to be the one in charge of you. If you run to the checkbook and you spend all the money to feel good about yourself again, then you're running to the bank. And that's the money and stuff is your thing, not the God himself, right? You can determine a lot. So here's the question, right? Does your suffering prove your faith is genuine? Listen to this. Jesus talks about it in Luke 8, verse 13. He's talking about the soils, actually. And one of the soils is when the seed gets thrown onto the rocky soil, 
and it sprouts up, and the sun comes out, and it bakes that thing, and it dies because there's no root. Remember the story? Okay. He says, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, the same word for trial in this passage, in time of testing, fall away. So you can think that just because you had some joy at one point in Jesus that you're still a Christian because you never were. If you don't run to him, you don't have a relationship ongoing. You might never have been a Christian. You might have just heard some good things that made you feel good and thought, that's that's where I'm going to go for help. And then you kind of keep coming back every once in a while. But in heavy suffering, where do you find your hope? If you don't find it in the Lord, you need to turn, repent, and believe on him. He's the only place we'll find it. Look, here's what happens when the apostles are being persecuted. Acts 5. I love this passage. I hope I would be this way. I can't say that I would. In verse 40 and 41. When they had called in the apostles after they were preaching the gospel, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer like Jesus. How does your suffering push you? Where does your suffering take you? I think that most of us have a struggle with this because we have this mindset that if we are really good people, we don't suffer in a bad way. We must be doing something wrong if we're suffering. Or we must be doing something wrong if we admit that we're suffering and struggling. When the truth of the matter is, is that God is most glorified in us when people see our need for God the most. And so when you're suffering and when you're struggling and you can't handle it and you tell people, I can't, but it seems like God's carrying me through and you keep running back to the Lord, running back to the Lord, that's when he's most lifted high in your own life. So if we would just be honest about our struggles and honest about our needs and honest about our hurts and our hangups and our failures, more and more people would come to know Jesus because they would see the reality of our need and they'd say, that's something that looks like what I need. But instead, they see a lot of us act like we have it all together, and they can never have it all together, so they can't come to church with us. They can't come be a part of that place. Instead, we need to say, man, I don't, I don't have it. I need the Lord. Where do you run in your time of suffering? Listen, I, I want to harp on these things. I say this to you because I love you, church. Because I, if you're suffering, and you're keeping that to yourself, and you're not asking people to pray for you, you're not asking people to go to the Lord on your behalf, what you're doing is saying that, hey, it's not enough, it's not a big deal, it's not worry about that, I'm not going to bring that to anybody's attention. You're saying, God, I don't need you to like, be glorified right now. That's what we're saying. Instead, we should have some people in our lives that we always go to and say, I need help here. Pray for me, help me, walk me through this. Can you pray with me? Can we seek the Lord together? And then we just rejoice in him in the midst of it. Look, look at this text, verse 6. In this you rejoice, so now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's how that works. When Jesus comes back and you have gone through those refining fires, look, tell me this. Anybody that you've ever met that seems to have a faith that is beyond comprehension, you're like, man, they love the Lord. They have so much dependence on the Lord. Their faith is so strong. You know how they got there? They went through suffering. Think about it. People you know that have a real strong faith in the Lord is because they've gone through suffering. I can name several of you in this church that I've met already that I'm not, you, go, you, you have the faith I want because you've been through suffering I don't want to go through. You understand what I'm saying? 
And that's the way it works. And when you see that, look at this again. So that the test of genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor with revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes back, he's going to look at us and he's going to throw it. If we've been gone through the tested fires where faith is genuine, it says right here that we will receive praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. He's going to throw that at us because he's going to have his glory reflecting out of us because we're showing our need for him in our lives and we're going to be praised. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. And we're going to receive the unfading crown of glory that we then, by the way, if you read Revelation, cast at the feet of Jesus and say, no, 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 it was all you. Because then we go back to verse 3 and we see, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. You see, as we rejoice in what he's done for us, and we go through suffering, and we see that he's done that anyway. He's overcome all that stuff, and this is only temporary, and one day it's going to be all fixed because he's already won the victory over Satan, sin, death, and hell on the cross by taking all of our wrath that we deserve for being rebels against him and not being perfect. He died in our place so that we can be given the joy that lasts forever in him, with him, for him, and he shines it back on us. It's like this reciprocating love that we have with God because of what he's done for us in Christ, and we keep shouting it back to him. It's like we can't get enough of each other. It's like the best rom-com ever, right? You know what I mean, romantic comedy? You get it? Like, it's what it is. It's like the never-ending, just, no, you're the best. No, you're the best. No, you're so great because you're, like, exemplifying me. I know because you're so awesome, right? It's just ongoing and up and up and up and up, and we're going to enjoy him and enjoy him and enjoy him forever. The problem is, if we can't even enjoy him now, are we really his? In the midst of our suffering, if we're not going to him and relying on him, no matter the outcome, knowing it's his, his design. Because see, real suffering in light of Jesus results in praise and glory and honor. It results in praise and glory and honor. Listen, I'm going to read this. Romans 5, 1 through 5. We're almost through. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we have peace with God because we were at enmity. We were enemies with God. But Jesus stepped into place, died on the cross for us, reconciling us back to God, right? It says, therefore, since we have been justified, declared righteous by the faith God has given us, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Through him, we have also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Listen to this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, Paul says. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So if you're His... You're not going to be put a shame in that because God's love is being poured out to you continually by the Holy Spirit, the one who has sealed you for the day of redemption, the one who has secured your place, held by God's power for that unfading inheritance in him. So I'll say it again, brothers and sisters. For Christians, our suffering leads us to deeper and greater joy in Jesus. We see that he loves us so much that he would carry us through with him. It doesn't mean he's going to fix it the way we want it. 
it means that no matter what we go through, we still have Jesus, and that's enough. It may not be all we wanted. Let me listen. I've read a lot of people's stories and read a lot of stuff about suffering and read a lot of stuff about joy this last couple of weeks. And I can't remember whose story it was, but it was a letter from one pastor's wife to another lady. And the lady that she's writing to had just lost her husband after losing her children, her boys. And I don't understand it because it's too much for me to like put in my brain trying to think it through. But you see, God loves you. Say this first. God loves you too much to leave you where you are if you're his. He loves you too much. He is jealous for your love. Because he wants what's best for you. And what's best for you is to love him first and foremost. And so this lady says, this pastor's wife says this lady in a letter. She says, and I'm paraphrasing, right, poorly. God must love you so much to take everything out of your hands that could ever get in between your love for him and his love for you. You would only be able to love him. Like the idea that that God would love her so much in taking the ones that she loved, which must be so hard, but so that she would put all her faith and trust in him and she would be never let down anymore and only fulfilled in her love because God will never let her down. He always fulfills his promises. Like, I can't imagine that kind of love and care. I can imagine going through those things, but I know this, that if we are his, He designed our suffering to lead us to understand joy deeper and better as we go through our suffering. Look, I'm going to read a passage in a minute when we're done after we sing. But I just want to pray for us now. And I want to encourage you, if you have never put your hope and faith in Christ in this way, that you would do that right now. I want to pray for all of us to repent of our sin, repent of not believing, not trusting. You put your faith and hope in him. And then we're going to sing a song. And I'll cast us out of here with one more passage of scripture. Let us pray together then. Lord, I know that you are way bigger and more able and capable to do this type of changing in our hearts than we could ever do. And Lord, it's kind of crazy to try to think about how the suffering that we go through could be something that not only that you allow, but that you might have designed for us so that we could be shaped and changed and that our faith would be made tested and shown to be true and that we might have more faith in you. It sounds unthinkable, but God, that's what you do for those who know you and love you because you love us so much that you would draw us through difficult times that are coming at us because of the world around us and that you would draw us through that so we depend on you and make our faith even sweeter and our relationship with you even better. Lord, can't understand it all. I don't fathom it all, but I know that you have always, always, always fulfilled your promises. And I know that you promised to love us and you work all things to the good of those that love you and are called by you. So Lord, would you continue to work in us? And for this, Lord, I pray that you would draw our hearts to you, that we would repent of relying on self and rely on you, whether it be for the first time or the millionth time, that today you would strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would work in us to trust in you and that you would draw us to yourself for our joy and for your glory. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.